Well, good morning, everybody. Before we uh, get started, I just want to say thank you again to the Ross Alkaima Evangelical Church for having me here with you this, this week and this weekend. Uh, it's been just an incredible joy to be with you as you've celebrated 10 years of being a church. Josh, thank you for the invitation. It's such an honor to be here with you. Uh, I praise the Lord for our friendship and uh, for the partnership in the gospel that he has given to us. Even though it's half a world away, uh, it is still a sweet and, and wonderful thing. You know what's most wonderful about it, though, is that in his wisdom and in his goodness and in his kindness before the foundation of the world, God decided that in 2013... He was going to run up the flag of King Jesus here in the city of Ras Al Khaimah, and he did exactly that 10 years ago. So uh, we rejoice. We've been rejoicing about that all weekend, and we'll continue to rejoice this morning as we open up the Bible. Let me ask you a question before we get started, though. How's it been for you this morning, being here at church? How's, how's, it, how's it been? I mean, let's think about it for a second. The music. Did, did the music do it for you this morning? Did it, did it stir your emotions enough? Were you, were you able to worship this morning? I mean, maybe you'd have been able to worship a little better, you think, if the style of music had been a little bit different. Maybe if it was a little bit more like your, your home church that you grew up in, or maybe if the style of music was a little, a little bigger, maybe, a little more amped, a little more, a little more energy to it, like that conference you went to a few years ago. And do you think you'll ever be able to worship God again in your life like you did at that conference a few years ago? And that was incredible, wasn't it? And what about that scripture reading? Did you, did you get anything out of that? And what, did that what did that mean to you? How did, that, how did that impact your circumstances? I mean, it was one of those Old Testament texts from the, from the prophets. I mean, maybe for you, that, that scripture reading was a little too Old Testament, for you to really be able to worship God through it. I mean, maybe you'd have been able to worship God a little bit better if it had just been from the New Testament, right? Or maybe a little bit closer to one of your favorite scripture readings. And maybe it would have helped other people to worship better if it weren't such an obscure passage. How's this worship service been for you? What have you gotten out of it? Has it even been worth getting up this morning to, to come? Have you gotten enough out of it for that? Hey, maybe you're sitting there and your answers to those questions are, yeah, I got a lot out of it, man. It was great. I worship God. It's even been a long time maybe since I worshiped God. But today, I worship God and I'm grateful for that. Well, that's fine. That's great. But what I want to try to convince you of today is that even if that's what you're thinking, even if the answers to all those questions I just asked is yes and amen, what I want to try to convince you of is that that's just an utterly wrong way of thinking about worship in the first place. Because the point of a church gathering together to sing songs and read scriptures and sit under the preaching of the word is not so that you will get something out of it. That's not really the point. It might be a secondary effect of it. But the point is for us to gather together and worship the God who saved us. That's why we're here. Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 11. That's where we're going to be for the morning. We're just going to be looking at four verses at the end of chapter 11. 
Without a doubt, Romans 1 through 11 is the greatest theological treatise in the entire New Testament. Basically, nobody disagrees with that. There are a few places in the New Testament that come in a kind of close second, but basically everybody will agree that Romans 1 through 11 is sort of the pinnacle of theological reasoning in the New Testament. And in those chapters, Paul lays out a vision of God's work of redemption that's nothing short of breathtaking. You may be familiar with the book of Romans, but let me give you a kind of running start on it. In roughly chapters 1 through the middle of 3, what Paul does is give an explanation and then a condemnation of sinful humanity. He explains how every single one of us is sinful, whether we're Jew or Gentile or just human. Everyone stands accountable before God. And the verdict that's going to come down from God's throne, according to Paul... In chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, is guilty. You are guilty as charged. You've rebelled against God. You've sinned against him. And therefore, what you deserve is hell. You deserve to be cast out of his presence for all eternity. Well, starting in the middle of chapter 3 and running through chapter 5, Paul presents the, presents the solution that God has given to that problem, the great hope of justification, that is, of being declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what happens from middle of 3 through 5. In 6 to 8, there's just this kind of fireworks display that goes off in in Paul's mind. It's just this beautiful meditation for three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, of the gifts that God has given to us. He talks about the blessings that come to those who, who have faith in Jesus. So union with him, freedom from sin, freedom from the law, the power of the Holy Spirit living in our lives, resurrection power, adoption, the assurance that God is working all things for good and that nothing, finally, in chapter 8 can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In chapters 9 through 11 then, which is the section that ends with what we're going to be talking about today, Paul gives a kind of explanation and defense. He kind of returns from, you know, not so much the fireworks display anymore of 6 through 8. He returns to sort of theological reasoning on a problem that's been bothering him. And that is the fact that most of his own countrymen, most of his own people, the the Jews, are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, he grapples with that and wrestles with it to try to figure out what God's plan might be in having the Jews reject the gospel at least for a time. What he realizes is that God has given a promise that all of that, even the Jews' rejection of the gospel, would amazingly and astonishingly and eventually turn out in the end for the good of both Jews and Gentiles, and ultimately for God's and Jesus's even greater glory. And as he unfolds this and unpacks it, and as his mind kind of grasps what God's plan is in all of this, the whole thing is so breathtaking to him that Paul just can't contain himself. And so in the last few verses of chapter 11, after laying all this out, he breaks into praise. So look with me at Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Here's the song that he spontaneously breaks out into as he thinks about God's plan. He says there in 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, before I really get going on this this morning, uh, let me give you a quote very quickly from Charles Spurgeon, who is widely recognized as one of, if not arguably, the best preacher in all of history. I found this as Charles Spurgeon was about to preach these verses right here to his own church, and here's what he says about these four verses. 
He says, such a tremendous weight of meaning is concentrated here in these four verses that an archangel's eloquence would fail to convey its teaching in all its glory to any finite minds like ours, even if seraphs themselves were its hearers. I will affirm that there is no man living who can preach from this text a sermon worthy of it. Nay, that among all the sacred orators and the eloquent pleaders for God, there never did live and never will live a man capable of reaching the height of the great argument contained in these few simple words. I utterly despair of success and will not therefore make an attempt to work out the infinite glory of this sentence. Okay, so have a great day, (laughs) y'all. Seriously, if Charles Spurgeon is going to despair of success and walk away from it, then I quit. But I'm not going to do that because Charles Spurgeon does go on to preach this text. He goes on to say that, look, if we're going to do this today, then God is going to have to preach his own sermon through this, and I'm just going to be the conduit of it. And I make the same prayer today, too. I think it is going to be, despite the glories of it, and despite the fact that one archangel could not preach it in all of its glory to another one, I think it's going to be profitable for us to take a look at it today. I mean, actually, this kind of thing, if you read through the New Testament, is really typical of Paul. He's often so overcome by the grandeur of what he's been saying that he just kind of breaks off into song. It happens all the time in his letters. In other words, the the logic that I want you to see, even right here at the beginning, is that Paul's theological reflection often, and, and one might even say always, results in doxological exaltation of God. That's how it works. His theological reasoning and reflection always results in doxological, that means, that means glory, right? Giving glory to God. Doxa, gl- glory. Doxological worship of God, exaltation of God. Now, I wonder if the same thing's true of you. I mean, I know that this is a theologically minded church. I know you care about theology. I see the, the books that you read, and I hear the, you know, the sermons and the teaching that your pastors expose you to? I know that you're a theologically minded church, but the question is, does your theological mindedness also lead you to doxological worship? Or do you just reflect on the theology and then just sort of let it sit there like a dead letter in your hearts? I think for a lot of Christians, the word theology evokes a lot of bad stuff. I think it evokes everything from you know, stuffy libraries and smelly books to sheer boredom and your eyes are just rolling back like, what are you guys talking about with all those theological words to, you know, even worse stuff like fears of arguments or fears of division in the church. It leads to a lot of stuff going on in our minds when we hear the word theology sometimes. But it shouldn't. Because theology is is just the big word that we use to talk about learning and meditating on the deep things of God. His nature, his character, his ways and plans and works of redemption. And to think about those things and meditate on those things is not just a dead academic exercise. It's something that ought to lead to worship. Okay, but then the question becomes, all right, well, what, what, does, what does right worship look like? What does right worship look like? I mean, you know, obviously right worship is worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ. That's kind of a quick definition of what true worship is. It's the worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ. But, but even once you've got that, what kinds of thoughts fill the mind of someone who is worshiping rightly? 
And if you listen to the conversations outside a whole lot of evangelical churches, you would think that the kinds of thoughts that fill up the minds of people who are rightly worshiping are the kinds of questions I was asking at the very beginning of this sermon. Questions like, what am I getting out of this? What is this doing for me or to me? Do I feel spiritually engaged right now? Do I like the music? Did I get anything out of that sermon? Well, what I want to show you today with the words of Paul's own doxology here is that the answer is no, those are not the right questions at all. Those are not the right thoughts that ought to be filling up your head when you're engaged in worshiping God. If you want to worship rightly, your focus has got to be somewhere else entirely. Not in here, but up there. When I'm preaching in Louisville at 3rd Avenue, I like to give my congregation what I, what I call a main idea. So it's just one or two sentences that I think encapsulate in usually a pretty short frame what the main idea of the text is. And if I'm doing this expositional preaching thing right, then the main idea of that text ought to be the main idea that I'm communicating to you. And if it's not, then I didn't do expositional preaching correctly. But as I've studied these verses, I, th- I think the main idea of verses 33 to 36 in chapter 11 of Romans is this. Remember what God has done and who he is and bow your head in humility and awe and worship. I think that's what Paul is doing. I think that in in writing it down, that's what he's calling us as his readers to do. Remember what God has done and who he is, and then bow your head in humility and awe and worship. So you look at the text, you can see there pretty easily that it unfolds in three sections. You've got verse 33, stands by itself, then 34 and 35, which are set apart like that uh, in poetry because they they have a meter to them. Uh, They have a kind of uh, rhythm to them. So they're, they're set aside as poetry. And then verse 36 stands on its own, which is the kind of final doxology that Paul gives in worship to God. So taking those three sections of it, I want to make three points. Essentially, these are three characteristics of a heart that is worshiping God rightly. Three characteristics of a heart that's worshiping God rightly. And here they are. Number one, a wonder at what God has done. A wonder at what God has done. Number two, a humble recognition of who you are before God. A humble recognition of who you are before God. And then number three, an adoration of God for who he is. So those are the three points. Number one, a wonder at what God has done, a humble recognition of who you are, and then third, an adoration of God for who he is. So let's look at it. Point number one, wonder at what God has done. That's the first characteristic of a heart that is rightly worshiping God. You have in your heart a wonder at what God has done in the past. That's the first thing he says as he breaks into praise there in 33. Look at it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. How many of you went to like uh, elementary school and took science when you were in elementary school? Like, like, well, let's say like up through middle school. Raise your hand if you went like kind of up through middle school, took science classes. Yeah, that's, mo- that's most of you. Do you remember in science class, uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know where you went to school, what your school was like. But in my middle school science classes, we dissected bugs, which meant that you would take a bug and you would pin it down to a piece of styrofoam with pins and you would take a scalpel and you would 
cut that bug into pieces and try to understand each of those pieces as they were in relation to each other. What, what was the, what was the, pro- we learned a lot. I mean, you learn what wings are on the bug and these are the legs and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff you can learn from dissecting a bug. What was the problem with the dissection of a bug though? The bug, the bug was dead, right? I mean, the bug did not survive the dissection. And I think when you come to a verse like verse 33, there's a tendency, especially among theologically minded people, to want to pin that sucker down and dissect it rather than letting it live in our hearts. So, for example, if you look at it, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And there's a way you can do this wrongly where you dive into that verse and you start to dissect it and try to figure out the fine distinction in the meaning between knowledge and wisdom, for example. Or the difference between judgments and ways. Or the difference between unsearchable and inscrutable. What does that mean? And why does he connect inscrutable to his ways but unsearchable to his judgments? And what does that mean? You can dissect it so badly that the verse dies on the table and doesn't live in your heart. But that's not what Paul is doing. It's not what he intends for us to do. Paul's not making fine distinctions between judgments and ways or inscrutable and unsearchable. He's not doing that. He's just here in verse 33 piling up words to praise God for what he calls the riches of the knowledge and wisdom and the unsearchable, inscrutable thing it would have taken for God to come up with the plan that he's just been unfolding in these chapters. And what he's acknowledging is, I could never, even being Paul, even being the guy who wrote half the New Testament, one of the most brilliant people on the planet in the history of the world, I could never have come up with this. This requires brilliance of a kind that doesn't exist in the highest archangel. This has to be divine. I mean, think about it. The plan of God. He has a plan to create a world and then to create human beings as his image in the world, to rule the world under him. And then he has a plan, believe it or not, for those human beings to rebel against him and to fall into sin. And then a plan to elect some of them and to redeem them through the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, and to bring them safely home to heaven and resurrect them again at the last day so that they might spend eternity glorifying and honoring their Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who would not be glorified as Savior and Redeemer and King had the whole plan not carried out the way he did from the beginning. It's an unsearchable, inscrutable plan full of so much wisdom and so much knowledge. And Paul is saying, you you can't trace that back to some source. You're not going to be able to pin that down and make sense of it in all its details. It's just a fireworks display of wisdom and knowledge and goodness. And Paul's job in 33, and our job reading 33, is is not to try to get our minds around it and grasp it like a bug on a piece of styrofoam. It's not to trace and search and find the reason, but rather just to stand in awe and delighted astonishment at what God has done and the fact that we've been swept up in it. It's not an unusual thing in the Bible. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul breaks into another song. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear that same note in there? To God who is able to do far more than all we ask or imagine, you can't get your mind around 
what God has done and is going to do. It's too big for you. Isaiah says, my thoughts, well, God, through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I had a roommate in college who I tried to share the gospel with for years. He he actually started out as, you know, a kind of full-on atheist, like 100% convinced that there was no God. And over the course of four years of knowing the guy and living with him, he sort of moved from being an atheist to being an agnostic to being a slightly less arrogant agnostic to being a Roman Catholic. And I was like, what, what in the world? You, you like slingshotted too far. I wanted you to stop short of swimming the Tiber. But I remember one argument that I was having with him, or discussion, I guess I should say, Uh, It was a discussion in which he was really pushing me on the fact that there were certain things about the Christian faith that just did not make sense to him. Like, how can you have a God who is, you know, one God in three persons and that not be a contradiction, right? Or how can you have a Jesus who is fully God and fully man, and yet it's none of those heresies that the early church talked about in the first few hundred years? And he was just going on and on and on about how there are just things about God that don't reconcile in his own mind. And, And I said, Mike... Would you really want to worship a God who is so simple and plain that everything about him would fit in your tiny little brain? He said, no, I wouldn't. And I said, I wouldn't either. It's a source of great comfort to me, in fact, that I don't understand everything about God's plans and ways. Because if everything about God could fit into my mind, that would mean that God is smaller than me. I assume there's an infinite amount of stuff up there in God's mind that will not fit into mine. And that's not a reason to say, God, you are unreasonable. God, you are irrational. It's a reason for me to fall down on my knees and worship and hope that when I get to heaven, maybe just a little bit more of it will fit in. But until that day, I worship. You know, it's good for us on a lot of different levels for For us, it's good for Christians to remember all of this. God has done extraordinary things and is doing extraordinary things all around us. And sometimes we simply will not be able to see them or understand them. Sometimes we'll see God working, we'll see God doing a thing, and we are just not going to be able to understand everything that he's doing. Now, that can drive us crazy sometimes. To look at the circumstances of our lives or to look at the circumstances of our church and not know what's going on. It can drive us nuts, but it's actually a good thing that we don't understand the full extent of what God's doing. That's because something that can be fully understood, something that's fully grasped, loses the capacity to excite and delight. I mean, what, what delights? Are you, are you delighted by looking at a bottle of water? No, you're not delighted by looking at a bottle of water. Because, I mean, unless you're super thirsty, but you're not delighted by just, you know, the mechanics of it. It's just a piece of plastic into which some people put some water and put a cap on it. There's nothing delightful about that. No, what, what delights is when you stand on the shore of the ocean and look out over it, and there's nothing but sea as far as your eye can see. That delights, that excites, because you can't contain it. You can't fully grasp it. I mean, a light bulb, does that delight you? No, 
I mean, we're glad it's there, but we can understand it. We kind of know, you know, from physics classes, what electricity does to the little filament inside it, and it causes it to, to burn, and it gets bright, and it creates light. That doesn't delight. It doesn't excite. Nobody has a light bulb in front of them and goes, wow. No, but you do do that when you look up into the sky at night, and you see the Milky Way above you. Wow, that excites, that delights, because you can't contain it and understand it. And there are those moments throughout life where things happen to us, things delight us, things excite us. And it's always because they're bigger than us and they can't be fully understood. It's like like that with God. It's exactly because God is infinite. It's exactly because his judgments and ways are higher than our judgments and ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's why he can be an inexhaustible fountain of wonder and joy and delight and worship for us. Friend, if you're a person who studies theology, whether you're a theological student or an intern or a missionary, whatever you are, if you're a person who studies theology, never, ever, ever for a moment think that the ultimate end of your studies is to grasp God, to contain him, to comprehend him, and to pin him down. It's not the point. The point is to worship him. The point is to get to another peak and look over into the riches and the wisdom of God and realize how much more you don't know. And then to delight in the journey of learning more. Friend, the higher you climb, the higher you climb into the knowledge of God, the further into his infinite glory you are going to see. He is inexhaustible. And that brings delight. It's also good for us as Christians to remember this, that God's wisdom and knowledge... His judgments and ways and work in the world are are all beyond our comprehension. It's good for us to remember that because remembering that acts as a kind of firewall against despair in our lives. You ever thought about that? To not know everything that God is up to acts as a kind of firewall against despair in our lives. I mean, imagine if you had no God who was inscrutable. Imagine if you had no God behind it all who was infinite. And all you had were just the bare events of your life. If all you had in your life were just the bare events of what's happening, then friends, there are lots of reasons for despair. There's global tragedy. There's almost 50,000 people dead in the the country of Turkey. There's terrorism. There's Christians being killed. There's fears about the possibility of war. There are wars going on in Europe. And that's just the geopolitical stuff. In our own lives, there's stuff to despair about. There's cancer and death and bad decisions and broken relationships and it's the most natural thing in the world to want to say, why is that happening? There's no reason in that. There's no rationality in that. It doesn't make sense. And when you come to that conclusion, you despair. This is what happens. But then behind you, in the back of your mind, there's Paul's saying into your ear and into your heart. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how unscrutable are his ways. And you hear his voice in the back of your mind and you remember that even if you can't see it, even if you can't trace it out, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. I mean, think think about Paul here. All Paul could see on the ground here was tragedy. That's all he could see. 
In terms of the circumstances of his life and the circumstances of the Roman church, it's all I could see. The Jews are rejecting their Messiah and being thrown out of the kingdom. And that's what Paul's mind is on. He says, I, I, I could wish that I were cut off from Christ if I could stop that thing from happening. That's 9-1. If I could, if, if I could stop that from happening, I could almost wish that I were cut off from Christ myself. His mind is full of tragedy. But when he lifts up his eyes into heaven and into the inscrutable riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He starts to see God's plan and it's magnificent and he worships. Friends, trust God. No matter what circumstances you're dealing with, his plan is magnificent. And every circumstance of your life fits marvelously into it. You know, what, you know what else understanding this does? It, it doesn't just act as a firewall against despair in our lives. It does that. I think it's, 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 it's brilliant at doing that because we can trust God even when we can't see his plans. It's like, God, I don't know. These circumstances don't make sense, but I assume that the purpose and plan behind them is something that won't fit into my little you know, water, water bottle of a brain. I assume that that's, the, that that's the case, and so I trust you. It does work like that. But you know what else? Sometimes not knowing what God is up to is not just a firewall against despair. It's also a spark for worship. You ever had those times in your life when when something happens and the Lord works something out and you you just kind of stand back and go, how did that happen? That's amazing. I didn't do anything to make that happen. I didn't do anything to cause that. And yet God did it. I don't know how. I don't understand why. But he did it and that's amazing. You've had those times in your life. I know you have because you're sitting right here in the Ras Al Khaimah Evangelical Church. This church is one of those things that the Lord determined he was going to do. And nobody at the time could see exactly how it was going to happen. And yet it did because God wanted it to. Somebody could write a history book about this place and trace out some of the ways that this happened, right? But when you get right down to the very bottom of it, you, you, you just are, you're just left with, with questions like, why did Gavin ask that question of the sheikh? Why did the sheikh respond favorably? It, there's just so many things that are inexplicable, and yet God did it. And that's a reason to worship. Look, here's, here's the point of this first point. There is no place for despair, and there is lots of place for worship in the Christian life. No place for despair and lots of place for worship. It doesn't mean we're just kind of, you know, as Christian Pollyanna optimists. That, that's, that, that's not what it is. No, what it, what it is, though, is that we know that God is capable of doing extraordinary things in a surprising way. And when he does, we as Christians look back on it in awe. Here's point number two. Not just a wonder at what God has done, though that's true. Point number two, right worship also includes a humble recognition of who you are. It includes a humble recognition of who you are. So in verses 34, 35, Paul's worship of God goes a step further. It's not just that he is any longer wondering at what God has so wonderfully done, but he also, in 34 and 35 shows us a humble recognition, that he has a humble recognition of who he himself is. See, see, the reason that God's ways are unsearchable and his judgments are beyond finding out is not because they're inherently unreasonable. That's not what Paul means. You could read that first verse badly, right? You could think, well, of course they're unsearchable. Of course they're inscrutable because they're utterly unreasonable. 
right? It's what my roommate in college would have said for a lot of years. But no, it's not, it's not that. It's simply because God's mind and wisdom and knowledge are infinite, and, and, and Paul's and yours and mine are decidedly not infinite. They're finite. Our understanding is finite. Our brains are finite, bounded, limited, like that little plastic bottle on the edge of the ocean. That's what Paul says in these verses, 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? There's nothing super difficult about that. The meaning of those verses is very straightforward. If you, if you look at it, you can see, you know, three, sort of three questions there. Two question marks, but one of them's a double in 34. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And each one of those questions is meant to be answered with, with, with the answer, well, nobody, right? All three of them. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who's been his counselor? Nobody. Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? Nobody. That's how it's supposed to function. Well, let's look at them. I mean, first of all, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's, who's plumbed its depths and figured out and comprehended the mind of the Lord? And the answer, of course, is Nobody has. Nobody. I mean, you just think about the minds that you kind of can comprehend. And it's still hard. I mean, who can comprehend the mind of a baby? Well, honestly, that's not that hard, right? I mean, if a baby is crying, there are only about, you know, four things that that baby could be wanting. Comfort or sleep or food or a change of diaper. You know, it's a pretty finite set of things that a baby could want. It's not that hard to know the mind of a baby. Toddlers are more difficult. Teenagers are impossible. But God? God? God's mind? How are you going to understand that? How are you going to know the mind of the Lord of the universe? And yet, I, I can't tell you. I mean, my, my church in Louisville is situated right next to a, a, a big research university, and I can't tell you how often I've run into students from that university who will say things like, well, if I can't understand it, it can't be understood. You know, or like my, like my roommate said, huh, you know, three persons in one God, fully human, fully God, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's a contradiction. You know, and I just kind of take a breath, sigh, and I just kind of say, no, they're not, they're not. And if you think about them carefully enough, you're going to see that they're not contradictory. No, no, you're not going to be able, with your finite mind, to finally and fully reconcile them, right? Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We can go a little bit away with our mind to reconciling those things. We can go a little bit of the way toward reconciling Jesus as fully God and fully human. But it's like two lines that are approaching a, a resolution out here, but our understanding stops here. But we can see that somewhere out there, those two lines are going to intersect. It's going to make sense when we get to heaven, if God decides to reconcile it for us. And it would be a small God that would fit inside our minds. We're not going to know his mind. Who's known the mind of the Lord? No one. That's Paul's point. Second question there, who's been his counselor? And again, the answer is no one. No one. No one stands behind the throne giving God advice on how to run the universe. He doesn't have a council of angels that's, you know, that gathers around a big table in heaven and God says, well, what, what do you all think about this, this problem in Ukraine? Let's talk about that and then I'll take some action on it. And the angels give their ideas and God scratches his head and says, oh, Michael, that's a great idea. Nobody gives counsel to the Lord, including you and me. 
And yet when you think about it, we try in so many different ways to give God counsel about how he ought to run our lives. I mean, you realize, right, that like 99% of the anxiety and negative emotion that you feel about the burdens and the circumstances of your life is due to you trying to be God's counselor. I mean, think about it. You're, you know, if you're angry, basically, you're, if you're angry at God, you're, you're basically angry because you think that if you were God, you would have done this better. And you're wondering why God didn't see it that way too. If you're discontent, and probably it's because if you're, you're thinking that if you were God, you'd have given you better gifts and circumstances. And you're wondering why God didn't do that. If you're, if you're anxious, it's likely because you're thinking if, if you were God, then you could have more confidence that the situation would, would work out. But since it's in God's hands, you're, you're anxious and fearful. But brother, sister, listen to me. Listen, listen to me. Listen to Paul. God doesn't need, nor has he asked for, your counsel. He doesn't need, nor has he asked for your advice. You wouldn't do it better if you were on the throne. He is infinitely good and wise and powerful. Trust him and don't fall into the temptation of thinking you would do it better than him. You wouldn't. Look at that third question. Who has given God a gift so that he might be repaid by God? In other other words, the the question there is, who's given God something so that God is now in debt to him, right? Who's given him a gift? Who's given God something so that now God has to repay him? And again, the answer is nobody, no one. And God who sits in heaven is a debtor to no one. He owes to no one anything at all. In fact, we are the ones who are debtors to God. Everything you have, everything I have, has been given to us by the hand of God. The fact that you're alive, the fact that you're breathing, the fact that your heart is so far beating today is because God has allowed you to live. The possessions that you have, every single one of them, the shirt on your back, all of it are gifts from God's hand, and he could take them away with a breath. Your job is a gift from God, and he could take it away with a breath. Your family is a gift from God, and he could take them away with a breath. Friend, if you're a Christian, then salvation eternity, and glorification, and the streets of gold, and the sea of glass, and the presence of God, and seeing his face, all of it are yours because God gave them to you. And here's an important one. If you're in a ministry of some point, in some way, don't for a minute think that you are giving God a gift so that he will one day have to repay you for your service. It's not that. It's that he has given you the gift of serving him. And you realize that the longer you serve him, the more years you put in, in service to God, the more you owe him for the privilege. It's so important to keep that in mind. Listen, so so many of us think of our religion Whatever that is, whether it's coming to church or doing our our service, doing our missionary service, whatever it is, so many of us think of our religion as our way of basically getting in the black with God, of paying off our moral debt to him. And if we're lucky, if we do this really, really well, maybe even we'll be able by the end of our lives to flip the ledger on God so that he will owe us. 
But if that's how you're thinking in, in any way whatsoever, you're missing the point entirely. God doesn't owe you anything, and he will never owe you anything. The truth is, you owe him everything. You owe him for your life. You owe him for everything good you've ever experienced. And you owe him infinitely because of your sin against him. And what you need to understand, whether you're a Christian or not, what you need to understand about your debt in sin to God is that that's a debt that will be exacted to the very last penny. The debt of sin will be paid to God, whether you're a Christian or not. It will be paid either by you in hell for eternity, or it will be paid by Jesus on the cross in your place. And maybe you hear that and you think, yeah, I know, I know. I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus is a savior. I know I need to come to Jesus. I know I need to be a Christian. And you think, okay, Okay, but I, but I think, I think for now, I'll just wait until I have something, anything to offer when I, come into the, when I come into the throne room. When I come to Jesus, I'll just wait until I've got anything to offer. At least until I clean this mess up or stop doing that sin or start doing that thing or get this put together. But friends, you've got to hear me. You've got to hear me from the bottom of my heart. You are never, ever, ever going to have anything to offer God. Nothing. You'll never have anything to offer From start to finish, salvation comes from the sovereign and gracious hand of God to people who do not and never will deserve the slightest drop of it. The good news, though, is that you don't need to offer him anything. It's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus Christ has already offered him everything that's necessary for your salvation. And God offers you mercy right now, today. Friend, if you're you're not a Christian... If you're not a Christian, this is a wide open invitation. Turn away from your sin and rebellion against God and trust in Jesus to save you. But that's got to start. It's got to start with a humble, honest recognition of who you are before him. A sinner. Not his counselor. Not somebody who knows his mind. But a rebel who needs his grace. Here's the last thing. Right worship is marked by an adoration of God for who he is. An adoration of God for who he is. Verse 36 there, if you look at it, just kind of rockets off into the infinite nature of God himself. But even though it does that, it's rocketing off into the you know, unsearchable depths of God's infinity. It also gives the reason for why Paul said 34 and 35. So you know, the logic works like this. Why can we not fully comprehend and grasp and exhaust the mind of the Lord? And why do do we have to answer no one, no one, no one to those three questions in 34 and 35? Why can we never counsel him or correct him? Why can we never give God anything that would put us in his debt? Well, it's because everything in the universe, literally everything in the universe is from him and through him and to him. And therefore, all the glory is his. That includes you. You are from him and through him and ultimately, in one way or another, to him. I mean, it's easy to read over that too fast and just think, oh, well, the, you know, from and through and to, it's, it's, it's a wash, right? It doesn't really matter. But no, actually here, it does mean something, and we need to kind of parse out the differences between those three words. Each of them means something. So to say that everything or all things, the whole universe, you, me, everyone, and everything is from him means that he's the source of it all. He's the source. Through him 
means that he's the means, he's the way that it all happened in the first place. It all came from him and it all happened because he made it happen. That's what through means. And to him means that he's the goal of it all. All of it is meant ultimately to bring him glory. All of creation, you, me, and everything, is from him as its source, through him as the means by which it all happened in the first place, and to him, meaning we are all to glorify him in the end, one way or another. I mean, think about creation itself. Everything in the universe, the mountains, the stars, the galaxies, the atoms, the desert, you. It all has its source and origin in God. It all came from him. And how do we know that? Because there was a time, the Bible teaches us, when none of it existed. When God was utterly and completely alone in the universe. And and it's not even as if there were some, you know, floating around, primordial, eternal matter that God gathered up and fashioned into stars and planets. It's it's not that. No, there there was nothing except God himself. And then in the book of Genesis, he spoke, and out of his own omnipotence and wisdom, the universe flashed into being. Big bang, if you want to think of it like that. Once there was nothing, then God spoke, then there was everything. Theologians talk about that as God creating the world ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase that means ex, out of, nihilo, nothing. He created it out of nothing. It's all from him. And it is all through him as well. He sustains and upholds it all. I mean, let me read you just a few verses out of out of the book of Job, where Job has spent 37 chapters questioning God. What are you up to, God? I want to know your mind. I have questions for you. I have counsel for you. I have advice for you. And listen to how God answers Job, because he answers him with exactly this. Everything happens through me, not you. Listen to how he answers him. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. You've been, this is not in the text, you've been questioning me for 37 chapters. But now, back to the text, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have some understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, who shut the sea? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, this far shall you come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you, Job, commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. It's all through him. Not you, not me. He's the one who holds it all together. And it is all to him. It's all to him. The stars, the planets, the galaxies, all of it is is to him. It's to his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. You know, all, all those three things too are true of this church and every local church. 
I mean, this church is from God. It's like I said in, you know, the very beginning. If from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God determined that in 2013, he was going to run up the flag of Jesus Christ here in the city of Ras El Khaimah. It's from him. It was his idea from the beginning. It wasn't Josh's. It wasn't Gavin's. It wasn't the Sheikh's. It was God's. And all of this was through him, too. It's like the video said last night. God is still a God who moves the hearts of kings and sheikhs. Sheikh Saud had his own plans. He had his own, mean, he had his own ends. He had his own goals. And letting this church be planted here. But God caused it to happen. And he caused it to happen so that today people would be gathered here, redeemed and saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, singing praises to God from the United Arab Emirates. It's not just this church either. Also, your very salvation, if you're a Christian, is from him. He's the source of it. Nothing compelled God to act to save you. He was under no compulsion whatsoever to act to save you in any way whatsoever. Nothing compelled him to send his son to be that substitute for you. Nothing compelled him to choose you from the foundation of the world to receive salvation. In fact, everything about you stood against all of that. Everything about who you are and what you've done stood as a reason for God to say, not that one. And yet he said, that one. Come forth. He saved you. Which means that in a funny kind of way, your salvation was ex nihilo. It was out of nothing. You had nothing to offer. You had nothing that was valuable to God. You ruined that when you sinned. And yet he saved you ex nihilo, out of nothing. It was from him. Every step of it too was through him. He did it and he did it alone. He gave the promises, he sent the prophets, he, 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 he sent his son who lived, who prayed in Gethsemane who watched his friends betray and deny and abandon him. He bled on Calvary and died, and no one was there with him when he did it. Even his father forsook him when he was on the cross. And he rose again because his own inexhaustible power in life gave life again to his dead body. I lay down my life, he said, and I take it up again. It was all through him. And ultimately, your salvation is to him. It is to his glory alone. And when you stand in heaven, every word out of your mouth is going to be praise to God for what he has done for you. Brothers and sisters, when you get to heaven, when you're standing before the throne and you're reflecting on everything that's happened in your life, I'm warning you now, don't you dare whisper the slightest word of praise to yourself. Yeah, I, I, I know what God did, but man, I... I made the right decision. I had a choice and I made the right decision. Good, good for me. I exercised my free will. And I know what God did. I know what he did, but I'm the one who had the faith. Friend, don't you dare do that because I promise you an angel's going to come and slap you upside the head and say, no, no, even the faith was a gift from God that he gave to you. All glory, all the glory from start to finish in creation, in this church, and in you, is his and his alone. Never try to rob him. 